Welcome to Jolty. I'm Maggie Wilkinson, joined today by our hosts, proven futurists and good friends, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hamp. Have you ever heard a podcast or read an article, watched a news segment that really resonated with you? Maybe it was educational or thought-provoking or even inspiring. Well, a few months ago, I had an experience like that when I read an article in the Times. And wouldn't you know it, Adam Hampt has brought this gentleman on as our visitor today. It outlined a concept so simple, but something that could have incredible impact. I needed to know more. And so today it is with great pleasure to welcome to Jolty, entrepreneur, developer, and CEO of Makerhoods, Avi Telias. And with that, let's jolt. I'm really excited about Avi because he is such a passionate entrepreneur whose mission is to help and mentor other entrepreneurs. And he's tackling a huge problem in America, probably our biggest one, which is the wealth gap, which is social inequality, which is bringing uh, the next generation um, the ability to create wealth for their families. And he's doing it in a very unusual, very innovative, and very creative way. And I don't think You've heard anything quite like it before. Thank you, Avi, for coming. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a great opportunity. Avi and I are old friends, colleagues. I've been watching him develop Makerhoods for a while, and it is really a remarkable vision. But Avi's also intensely practical because he can't just live in the visionary space. He has to live in the get-it-done space. Avi, why don't you introduce yourself, talk about what brought you here, and then we'll begin the conversation. All right, all right. What Adam didn't say is that we are great mental sparring partners. We love the give and take of uh, the uh, opposite sides of the spectrum that we're, we're sometimes on. The topic, the idea of makerhoods is so current, it's so relevant, and really so necessary. I'm glad to talk about it. I've, you know, I've been speaking about it for the past, I think I came up with this concept maybe eight years ago. So yeah, let's, let's talk about it a little bit. So how would you describe it to our audience who doesn't know much about it and is anxious to learn? Well, so we are real estate developers, uh, but we develop a very specific type of product, what we call affordable live-work neighborhoods. Specifically in economically challenged areas, we create uh, what you mentioned before, the idea of somebody living above their little shop. So we designed it in such a way that for $1,800 a month, you can get a little shop. It's about seven, 800 square feet. And you can also get an apartment. And that 1,800 covers both, as well as a host of support services. Wow. To ensure that your business is vibrant and growing. It's geared towards micro entrepreneurs. These are tiny you know, businesses who typically make what they sell for the most part. That's what we call them makers. So it's like Etsy in real life? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's like Etsy in real life, but the digital world obviously has its own challenge. But this is a little bit more complex because many cities don't allow you to have a little light manufacturing shop at the bottom of your... Yeah. You know, that, that was zoned out years ago. And it's unfortunate because there are many people with great talent and ambition and interest and desire, but are locked out of any kind of a commercial space. And so the first thing we did was propose what we called maker zoning and convinced the city of Newark and a couple of other cities to pass this zoning type that would allow you to have a small little factory in a residential building, which is quite interesting. 
But the other little nuance that I added to it, well, I wrote the zoning actually myself, is that if you want to run one of these shops, I said that you have to live in that building. I didn't want what I call domestic imperialism. I didn't want people to come into disadvantaged neighborhoods, opening a shop, taking all that money, you know, every evening with them to their gated community somewhere and never right. meet in the community. That was important to me. In fact, that caused me a lot of trouble with, with a lot of the lenders because they really couldn't understand that kind of requirement. But eventually we got it passed and we got it funded. And so uh, we're about six months into it. And hopefully by the end of this year, we'll take our tenants in. How actually did you pop up with this idea? My grandparents lived above their haberdashery store in a building they had bought uh, in the East Village. And it was kind of wonderful because they passed each other on the stairway at lunch. I was just wondering, did this come from your background or? Yeah, yeah. I um, So I'm an immigrant. I was born in Tel Aviv, uh, actually born in the slums of Tel Aviv in an in um, industrial park uh, above a whole bunch of little manufacturing shops. So it's you know, kind of what I grew up with. But we emigrated to the United States when I was 10 years old and grew up over here. And I was fortunate enough to go to business school and came from an entrepreneurial family. So all I did was entrepreneurship. And so I bought some businesses and sold them and so on. So, you know, ended up with a couple of nickels in my, in my pocket. And as I say, any like any schmo with two nickels in his pocket, now I'm a real estate developer, right? So, <laughs> so I started building some things and had a kind of a, a midlife detour in my late 40s. I was getting divorced, had to cut down one of the businesses. And I remember sitting at a desk, okay, you know, what, you know, what do I do now? How can we do something really meaningful and not just, you know, make money for money's sake? At the time, there was the terrible uh, sort of the Great Recession and people were suffering. And I, and I recognized that uh, the way my, my family came to the United States and slowly, you know, climbed up the economic ladder, that kind of path was very, very difficult today. It was extremely challenging and a lot of barriers there. And so I said, okay, you know, what would you do to make that a little bit easier? So you, you start looking back. And so what, what did we do in history, right? I went all the way back. Gosh, I ended up in feudal England, you know, back then, to, you know, at the time where they had the commons, where literally there was some land dedicated to folks as, you know what, you can, you know, graze three cows and, you know, 10 chickens on this area and you can cut down five trees. So we had ways to enable people to become self-sufficient and self-reliant. And in our modern economy, when we sort of embarked on this whole idea of wage labor in factories, all of that just died and atrophied. And so I said, okay, how can we create that in today's economy with the benefits of the technology that we have, the internet and so on? And it's really interesting. Entrepreneurial support services and anything that spurs entrepreneurship has a 10 to 1 ratio of benefit to investment. Everything else in the economic development world a success is a two-to-one return. So really? development is a two-to-one. Affordable housing is like a three-to-one benefit. Entrepreneurship is a 10-to-one. Wow. There are studies by the Aspen Institute that if you're an African-American woman in a wage labor scenario versus being your own in your own business, your net worth is 10 times larger if you have your own business. So it's a very powerful engine but too many barriers, right? No developer goes out and builds 600 square foot little shops. They'd rather do a, a 4,000 square foot shop and rent it to, you know, a, a national chain. So there were a lot of barriers. The zoning was wrong. Uh, so 
that's how it all came together. Well, I call this like the step stool to the first rung of the economic ladder. This is the little step that you need to get your business going before you go out into the real economy and, and compete with the rest of them. So that's how it sort of came about. You get a piece of their business? No, just uh, let them have their business and grow it and so on. And how many kids can they have in that kind of size apartment? So there are, so the $1,800 is for a one bedroom apartment. So maybe a baby and so on. But again, unlike most developers who just build one bedroom apartments in studios, right? For the millennials, I've got a bunch of two bedrooms and a bunch of three bedrooms realizing that you're going to have families in some of these areas and you need double income families. So one runs the business, maybe one has another job. So is it always on top of the store though? Always on top of the store, uh, but it's a building on top of the store. So it's not just one story building. It's, yeah, yeah. it's five stories. Yeah. Avi, I'm curious, can you describe what the neighborhoods are like? I'm thinking of Jane Jacobs describing being in the north end of Boston and so surprised by sort of the sidewalk life and what the community is like in urban yeah. areas where there is this vitality. In our area, I think the unemployment is about 34 percent. Wow. Uh, I think the poverty rate is high 20s. The average income is maybe $28,000 a year. It's a real distressed area. However, the people are not distressed. You know, I say in my talks, when we speak about this, I say, who the hell do you think makes your croissants and, and, and sews your clothing? It's these people. They just don't know they can have a business doing it. You know, so the talent and the vibrancy and the energy and the desire is all there. But the barriers, the neglect, the bureaucracy, the crime, unfortunately, that's there too. There's so many really fascinating pieces here. One of them is the building itself in Newark. The Kruger Mansion, which has a great rich history, which mm -hmm. is part of this whole restoration project. Yeah. So one of the questions you asked me is, you know, was it hard to work in Newark and, you know, did it take you a long time? Yeah, I was invited to come in. I made a couple of speeches. I have a little TEDx talk that I did. You say, well, this is great. We'd like to do this here. And here's a parcel. And it was a mansion that was built in 1885, a beautiful Victorian mansion built by a guy named Gottfried Kruger back in the heyday of Newark's industrial activity. Uh, he was a beer baron. He was the first American to put beer in cans. Great uh, little uh, factoid about him. But then he sold it. Of course, we had prohibition and so on. He sold it. It was owned by uh, Freemasons for a while. But then in 1954, it was bought by a woman who came up from the South. She cleaned homes in Newark, but she loved hair products. And so she started making some and selling a little bit here and a little bit there and, and, and then opening up one store and then another store. And before you know it, she had a school. Well, by 1954, she became Newark's first African-American millionaires. And she bought this mansion. I mean, the governor was shocked. He had to come and visit. Who's this African-American woman who you know, bought this mansion? So it had a great entrepreneurial juju, let's say, right? It had a great entrepreneurial background. So I love the site. I love the fact that it's got that kind of a history. And then in the back where the gardens used to be is where we're building our brand new building with 66 apartments and 16 little shops. So it's a nice little campus that does both. Because the problem we're discussing, I won't even say trying to solve, you know, let's go, maybe it's the problem we're discussing, the idea of economic mobility and opportunity and, and really, at the end of the day, it's, it's about dignity for working families, which is my dad and how he started out. I mean, he never finished third grade, could hardly read or write English, rest in peace. He died a few years ago. 
but he made a lot of money. And so the challenge of helping folks like that remains. It's been throughout history and it remains. And what drove me is I really, to the last penny that I have, believe that this can turn the tide. Why can we not solve this problem? Why has it taken so long? Well, because we're always dealing with the symptoms. Crime too high, put people in jail. Not enough money, send out checks. Housing is too expensive, you know, build cheap housing. Those are all the symptoms. The cause, the root of all of this, you know, if you ask people uh, of of limited means, what, what do they want? They'll tell you two things. And in this order, to be treated with dignity and to have gainful employment. They don't want private jets like Jeff Bezos or private islands like Mark. They, they don't care about those things. They're a very modest lot. They want just the basics, a little dignity, and to be able to earn a living, take care of their family. So what's driving me is I believe this can help. The marriage of this pre-industrial way of living above the store, marry that with the technology that we have today to deliver services, to deliver our collective knowledge and expertise to the folks that we're talking about is a unique time in history. So, so that's what's, you know, I get really excited about this sort of, I always feel like I've sort of cracked the code or something, you know, that's what's been driving me. I really want to prove that we can take her from $25,000 a year in income to $40,000 a year in income, doing something she loves without emptying the ocean uh, worth of efforts in terms of subsidies and all kinds of other things. And you've done that. Avi, we'd love to hear one or two success stories that really bring to life what you're trying to accomplish here. One of our makers uh, makes greeting cards. A very smart young woman. When we started talking with her, she was selling about $2,500 or $3,000 a month in greeting cards. And Kristen from our, our company says, well, do you think you can get to $7,500 a month? What could you do? And she says, wow, you think I can really do $7,500 a month? Well, you know what? She got a couple of mentions in some magazines. She's up to $20,000 a month now. We just got her a $40,000 loan from one of the local nonprofit organizations. And she's going to hire three or four more people. And I know it can be done. That's what keeps me going. I know we can do this. Avi, do you have any other stories like that? Tell us about somebody else. We have, you know, a woman that comes to our meetups with the baby carriage and two kids. And she's starting a business to do a modesty clothing. So she's of the Muslim faith. And she felt that the fashion is not really where it needs to be. And so she started a little business. And here she is holding one baby this way, one in the carriage. And she's coming to meetups to learn how to grow her business. And so she's doing pretty well right now. Uh, We had a woman who, in the beginning of the pandemic, started making masks. It's the first time she's ever sold online. So she called us up, she says, you know, she's crying, crying. My dad just bought some things for me. I haven't spoken to him for 10 years. Wow. So we're really opening up a world that is very, you know, known to us, but to some of the folks there has been sort of out of reach. And it shouldn't be, it's not that hard to get them over the line. Right, and then in terms of the technology moment, it's not just people who may walk into the store in Newark, but it's the platform, which is going to connect these makers to everybody. And of course, Etsy has become a bit industrialized. It is not what it was. So if you really want the source of like real individual makers whose heart, soul, and passion is in their business, and you want to support them, this is the place to do it. The idea of these of these makerhoods would not 
really be viable without the internet because the purchasing power in the communities that we're in are very low. So they can't, you know, rely on walk-in traffic. Nobody walks down the street and says, oh, let me go in there and buy a suit. It doesn't happen anymore. So that's just, you need the online world. You know, that's what makes this viable. In order to do that, you need a marketplace, which is great because now on a click-by-click basis, we can administer some consulting, some assistance, some mentoring. Hey, let's try Facebook ads. Let's try this. Let's try that. Your photography needs a little bit of updating. And she learns as we go through it in real time what works and what doesn't work. You you said know, Adam, Adam asked me a question once about, uh, you know, did these businesses uh, succeed? And I said, you know, Adam, not every business will succeed, of course, but every entrepreneur will succeed. Learning the, you know, dealing with constraints and dealing with budgets and timelines and presentations, they come out of it much, much better than they ever entered into it. We really are a two-tier economy. You know, if you're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, you can fail and people continue to throw money at you. That's just the way it is. Fail forward. We have all these buzzwords. But if you are this person that we're supporting in neighborhoods, you can't get out of failure. That one failure will be something that's pinned on you forever. So that's why it's so important that we give them every chance and we give them the confidence to have the second chance, which others in our society have, but they don't. Right. You refer to your people, your tenants, or whatever you call them, she, several times. Are they mostly female? 97% are female, African-American females. Wow. Which is, by the way, the fastest growing uh, segment of entrepreneurs. Wow. So the, and not all entrepreneurs of necessity. You know, many with college degrees, many with business experience. I'm just like wiped away because logic and financial understanding and everything says you couldn't do this. Yes, that's exactly right. That's why it's so spectacular. So where else are you going to open these up? Well, I get calls a lot from other cities. I have some property in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, which is actually one of the first towns I wanted to work in. So Patterson is really interesting. Patterson is America's first industrial park. It was designed, this idea was financed by Alexander Hamilton. Wow. A, um, yeah, it's something you, you probably don't even know. There's a national park in Patterson with a waterfall, second only to uh, Niagara Falls. I did so not know During this. the American Revolution, um, Alexander Hamilton saw this space. And then right after the revolution, he says, hey, we, we need to compete with this new idea of manufacturing with the British. We can't just send them our raw material and buy their value-added goods. So we right. just start making things. And uh, here's a great waterfall that we can use to turn the wheels. So he got Congress to give him a half a million bucks back then to buy 600 acres to create Patterson, which was really the first industrial park. Lenfant designed it, the guy, same guy that designed Washington, D.C. So it's very rich in history. So that's why I started there. I thought it'd be perfect symmetry that this new, you know, industrial revolution will be at the place where the first one was. But it's difficult working in some of these towns. It just takes a while. Is that your next makerhood, Patterson? Yeah, that's Patterson, right. When do you, when you start that? Uh, I'm going to finish Newark probably by the end of the year. And so I'm already starting in Patterson, trying to get an appointment with one of the folks on the council uh, there's, I mean, there's a political side to all these things that you have to sort of navigate. If we can find a way to facilitate or speed some of these projects in some of these communities, 
you'd see more of them. It's just, it, uh, you know, I gave up four, four and a half years of my life just in Newark. I mean, I was doing it for a couple of years before that in Patterson, just in Newark. That's a long time for a project. So in your dreams, how many do you think you want to do? There are 45 million Americans living below the poverty line. Wow. Half of all Americans make less than $30,000 a year. 15% of the land is either vacant or abandoned because of deindustrialization. We're a 12-cylinder economy operating on maybe two. So would it's you say? It's to go. Yeah. One of the questions you ask, Adam, is why haven't we, we, we been able to fix this problem? You know, by some accounts, we spent, since the war on poverty, something like 23 or so trillion dollars to try to, to fix this issue. And we haven't. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of runway to go with this. You know, we'll, we'll open up, let people understand what we do, how we do it. We'd like to develop a, an operating system, sort of a digital tool set for them to use. And then other developers do this as well. It'd be great. There's plenty of places where this can work. I'm thinking out beyond the, the mother with the baby carriage and the child on her hip that you're describing and thinking that not only does she move her income from 25 to 40,000, but she also pulls her family out of poverty, right? And creates, so you think about the exponential impact over time this has not just to the individual, but to the people who rely on them, their children. You know, we have the benefit of growing up in communities that you see a lot of this, right? And in some of these communities, you don't. You, you know, the folks get on the, on the bus at five or six in the morning, they go to their job and they come back, you know? And so I often say, you know, what's criteria for success? And sometimes I say, I'd be happy if I just hear one of the young kids from the high school across the street come by and say, hey, Mr. Jones, if I help you sweep your shop, would you show me how to make cabinets? That in itself, that kind of a, of, a, of a role model, that kind of a sense of, hey, I can do this. There's a way for me to, you know, to, to create a career for myself. So even the role modeling is pretty, I think, important. Avi, how are you measuring this in terms of, do you have people that work for you that are keeping track of the economic impact and the making the case so that you're able to demonstrate why this yeah, makes so, more sense so than I just have a big, out? poster in the office when we were in the office um, and you know you know our mission statement was helping Melody sell more dresses we had one of our makers her name was Melody she makes wedding dresses so I said that's you wake up in the morning and you go home at night you have to help Melody sell more dresses so it's all about did we help propel her business forward because when you have that then everything else comes with it so is Melanie installed yet or not no, not yet, because we, we haven't finished construction yet. She'll be coming along once we, uh, we have a 75, we have 16 workshops, and there are 75, as of now, waiting lists for these 16 shops. Wow. The other exciting piece of this, which we really haven't talked about, is building the community of the makers themselves, supporting each other, teaching each other, making the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Adam, you'd be surprised. I mean, this is some of these folks are really struggling. But when you ask them, what do you want to achieve? And what do you want to do? I'd like people in my community to see that it's possible. I'd like to help my community. It's amazing the kind of outward perspective that they have, giving the challenging position that they're in, really commendable. It's nice to see. 
So yeah, the community is pretty important. They rely on one another. We have calls with all of them. They help one another. Right now we're focusing on, on fashion and food so we can at least have some domain expertise. So they really do share quite a bit. Do you think that the pandemic and what it's done to retail and what it's done to a lot of the jobs in retail and the service industry is tailwinds? It'll force people to realize that we need new solutions that are radically different than what we had in the past. Yeah, I think it's, you know, everybody's rethinking everything because of the pandemic, right? Particularly retail got trashed so hard. And the folks that we're talking about in the communities that we're talking about, they were devastated before and they're devastated now. How much more down can they go? Uh, It's going to be harder to go up given the difficulties that are there now. Naturally, folks have lost their jobs. Rents are not being paid. Some buildings are becoming a little bit unkempt. So it's a challenge, no question. It wouldn't take a lot of investment to help these communities. That's the sort of frustrating part. It it really wouldn't. We're not asking, as I said, for for these folks to be in Park Avenue type living conditions. It's really, the bar is not that high. I just absolutely love it. It's just such a beautiful vision. It really can cure a lot of this poverty. I'm just very, very impressed. Avi, thank you so much. Your passion is uh, is evident, contagious, and uh, it's just wonderful to hear. Thank you so much for and having me. Now you me. have new friends. Thank you, guys. Okay. Thanks, Avi. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you for bringing him, Addie. I told you would oh, love him. Fascinating. Love him. Delightful. 